Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors and over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Monday Show. It's a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. Whatever's on your heart or mind, whatever you've been wrestling with, we'll do the best that we can to provide some answers. The way to call us is to dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. We have some good questions already. Or you can send questions in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Remember, we like your calls, and if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Um, Just hit the Call Now button, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. We have a lot going on this week. I want to remind you, ladies, tonight is our next-to-last installment of the Sweet Summer Devotion series. Phyllis MacArthur will be sharing her heart tonight, and you will be blessed, I promise you that's at seven o'clock at the same time we have our men's bible studies our high school age youth and our junior high school age youth uh, so you can bring the whole family we have child care of course for kids younger than junior high school uh, all of that starts at 7. Ladies, you can watch at calvarysa.com on the live stream. Uh, and again, Phyllis will be a blessing to you. Uh, it's also the week of our kids and youth camp uh, from Thursday through Saturday. Uh, our kids will be leaving at camp. I would appreciate your prayers. But if you have children and you want them to go, uh, it's as inexpensive as we can possibly make it. Dial um, church office. Uh, and uh, or go online and you can register. We would love to have your kids join us if they are uh, anxious to go. I had lunch. Uh, Paul and I would go to lunch after third service on Sundays uh, with the same family uh, every week. It's just been kind of a tradition of ours, and we just love them. Well, they're the ones who actually go to the youth camp and the kids' camp, and they do the cooking for all of it. They're a husband-wife chef team, and uh, they've been doing this for years. And, you know, little team, and you're feeding people. The crowds grow. You should see the team that they have, and they work so hard, but everybody loves it, and the food is absolutely great. So, Um, Lots going on. If you want your children to be involved, um, they will be blessed. So that's our invitation to you. One more time, and then we'll get right to some questions that have been sent. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is our first question today from our email inbox. Uh, Anonymous says, can you comment on the turmoil Ongoing in the largest group of Protestants in the world, the Southern Baptist just elected a 45-year-old as their president. The old guard is being pushed out. Isn't that the same as what's going on with the Calvary Chapel denomination? Anonymous, let me just make one thing perfectly. Calvary Chapel is not a denomination. 
we are an affiliated group of churches in fellowship with one another. They're based around common distinctives, but but unlike denominations, we don't pay anybody to be a part of Calvary Chapel. There's nobody from the home office that tells us what to do. Uh, every church is independent and autonomous, um, unlike what goes on in the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, the, the battle in the SBC is a lot more involved than just the older guys being pushed out and the younger guys coming in. There's a battle that's been going on now for several years uh, in the uh, Southern Baptist Convention uh, between Calvinists called the Neo-Cals, the young Calvinists, and, uh, and, and those who hold to traditional uh, biblical theology. Um, the days of, of Adrian Rogers when he was the president of the convention or Charles Stanley when he was president of the convention, those days are long gone. And it appears as though the neo-Calvinists have sort of taken over. They are now, I think, the majority, uh, and um, um, they are bound and determined to take uh, the Southern Baptist Convention uh, lock, stock, and barrel into a Reformed tradition. It's a a really, really um, horrible thing to see. Um, Southern Baptists have always held to the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, There's a lot of political things going on in the convention, but you could always count on them for really solid Bible expository preaching. Uh, and it just seems not to be the case so much anymore. So uh, if you are looking for a Southern Baptist church, what you want to find out is, um, are they Reformed? Are they Calvinists? Or uh, are they more or less belonging to what you call the old guard? You know, things change. Uh, this is not a good change, but things change. And uh, this has been slowly going on. I personally believe, Anonymous, that this is a result of of uh, Baptists looking to be appealing to younger and younger people. I think it's um, um, a result of the lack of emphasis uh, on verse-by-verse Bible teaching. Uh, the Baptist Convention has always been a group of preachers, uh, but they've sort of loosened their hands on the exposition of the Scriptures in favor of the expository pre- preaching of the Scriptures. And um, I think the result is they've just sort of lost their way doctrinally. Uh, it, it's not something any of us should be happy about. But, yeah, they are being pushed out. Uh, and this uh, turmoil, there's nothing new about it. It's been going on. Uh, you know the, uh, the 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 current president, the guy who just got elected to be the president, uh, J.D. Garrar, I think is the way you pronounce his name. Um, uh, he, his church didn't even know they were part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, years and years ago, as was the case with a lot of Southern Baptist churches, they took the Baptist identification out of their name. And his church didn't even know until he came back and said, well, I've been elected president of the convention. They didn't even know they were part of a Southern Baptist convention. So uh, it's just uh, kind of a sad thing to see. I I don't know this guy, J.D. Garrar, at all. Um, he is a uh, an effective preacher. I've listened to him. Uh, I do know some people who know him, say he's a really good guy, but he is certainly part of the Calvinist movement that's going on in the convention, and that is, uh, again, I think a shame. So I hope that helped. That's the best I can do. Here is our next question from another anonymous one, this one through our mobile app. Uh, Here she says, what is required to be born again? What is its meaning? Uh, to be born again means to be made new. Now, let me tell you first how you do it, and then I'll tell you what happens, and that will explain it. The way you're born again is to die to yourself. That means to get rid of the old you and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This isn't just knowing about Jesus. It isn't having intellectual knowledge of Jesus. This is about surrendering to his authority in your life. I told our church yesterday, and part of the message that I gave is that, you know, we call him Lord all the time, but unless we come to him as our boss, we understand that term culturally, unless we come to him as our absolute authority, well, then we don't really know him. And what I said to our church here yesterday is that you either come to him as boss or you don't come to him at all. You haven't met him yet. And, and to be born again requires that we confess our sins, 
confess that we are a sinner. And I don't mean going list by list through all the sins that you're guilty of. Just say, Lord, I'm that sinner. I need help. When we understand that, we ask him for help. But we don't just say, well, why don't you help my life improve a little bit? We have to lose our life. Jesus said anyone who finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, for Jesus' sake, will find it. Well, that's what dying to yourself means. And then what happens? You ask Jesus into your heart. It's giving him the place of prominence and priority in your life. The Spirit of God comes to live in you, and the born-again process is completed. Now, the reason this is so important, Anonymous, is because this is the content, really, of Jesus' message to the religious leader, Nicodemus, in John chapter 3. Except a man be born again, he will not inherit the kingdom of God. So when I say on this program that only born-again Christians are going to be in heaven, that's what I mean. It doesn't mean that there can't be any diversity in theology or or doctrinally. It, It means that we have to understand that the old you, the old me, we're condemned already, John chapter 3, Jesus said. But we have to be born again. And we do that by surrendering our heart and asking Jesus to take control. And then the power of the Spirit comes upon us when we obey, Acts 5.32, and then we're able to walk in the Spirit of God in a life that honors the Lord and pleases Him. So, Anonymous, that's what's required. It's faith in Jesus Christ. If you are listening right now and you believe Jesus is the Son of God and God the Son, that's an important distinction. Mormons will say that He's the Son of God. Jehovah's Witnesses will say He's the Son of God. But He's also God in human flesh. So He is the Son of God, but God the Son If you believe that he died for your sins, I will add that if you believe that he's coming back again, then all you have to do is receive him. To all who gave, we rephrase, to all who believed, he gave them the authority, the power, to be sons and daughters of God. So that's what it means. If you do it, it means you're going to heaven. If you do it, it means there's a power living in you now that is infinitely more powerful than even your flesh or the enemy of the world. It means you belong to him. And the moment you do that, the Holy Spirit comes in as a deposit. This is Ephesians 1.14. There's a deposit that's made in your heart, a down payment from God, from, from heaven, that guarantees your inheritance in heaven. It means we needn't doubt our salvation. It means that we needn't be afraid. It means that we can walk with Jesus every single day. Anonymous, I pray that that helps you understand it. And even further, I pray that that's what you want to do. 340-9585. Here's a question from a mobile app from Kirby. Uh, Yesterday in your sermon, you said that no Jews were ever healed of leprosy. Was Miriam cured of leprosy in Numbers chapter 12, verses 10 through 15? Uh, I waited for somebody to ask this question yesterday, and nobody did, Kirby. But um, the difference here, and this is what's important, Miriam was also afflicted by God. This was a judgment of God. It was a very temporary, quick thing. Um, So it it was just sort of a sign This wasn't a woman who had leprosy, and she suffered with it. Uh, She was afflicted with leprosy because of her rebellion against Moses, but most notably her rebellion against God. And so we can't declare this a miraculous healing. This was a judgment and then deliverance from that judgment, uh, and it happened over a, a small period of time. So the context of my message yesterday Jesus healing the leper in Luke chapter 5. The leper demonstrated such great faith because there was no reason for him to understand that Jesus would heal him of his leprosy. No Jew had ever been healed of leprosy. No afflicted man or woman had ever been cured. Uh, At least of the Jews, a Gentile was cured, Naaman, by Elisha. Naaman was the Syrian general. 
And um, that was the only one. And in fact, earlier in the chapter, Jesus gets into more trouble um, in in the Gospel of Luke because he, he said only Naaman the leper, Naaman the general was, was healed. And his point was it wasn't a Jew, he was a Gentile. So Miriam was cured, but it's not the same because she was also the one who was afflicted by God in the process. So I hope that helps Kirby and makes sense and helps you understand. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions um, or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from Christopher. He says, should we tithe off the gross or the net? Christopher, we shouldn't tithe at all. We should give generously and abundantly out of a grateful heart. Now, I understand our church culture teaches the concept of tithing. The word tithe means a tenth, and that's where it comes from. We give 10%. Um, uh, but, but remember, that's written to Jews, to people who are under the law. You can't find anything about a tithe or the law of tithing in the New Testament apart from Jesus telling the Jewish religious leaders who were under law that they tithe and it's right that they do so. Even then, Jesus was being critical of them because they were minutely giving a tenth of everything that they had that had value. But Jesus said, you're neglecting the heavier matters of the law. In other words, you're, you're not loving people. And so what we do is we understand this, this tithe as something we're required to do. If we were still under law, Christopher, then we would have to do it. But instead... We who are under the new covenant of grace, God's unmerited favor to the infinitely deserving, we get to give above and beyond. Here's a way to think about this, Christopher. If Jews who had no hope of salvation, the, the law that they served and the law that required them to tithe, if that law told them to give 10%, how much more? Should we who are New Testament Christians, born-again believers, how much we should give in response to to what I often refer to as God emptying the vault of heaven to buy us? Is freedom more viable to us than the law? So there's no New Testament command or even an inkling that we should give a tenth or ten percent. Now, here's why I think churches do that. I think if we can make you a member and we can require you to give 10%, and we do that with our entire church, then we can set a budget. We don't have to trust God to provide. Should we give 10%, we should give more than that. Is 10% a good place to start? Yeah, I think it's a, a tiny baby step of faith, shallow in faith place to start. But what we really need to do with our money is realize it's not our money at all. We should give it to Jesus because it belongs to him in the first place. Instead of Jesus, you gave me 10 bucks. Here's your dollar. We should say, Jesus, you blessed me with 10 bucks. How much of it do you want? I think this is really a place where our faith can be tested and our faith can be exercised. By that I mean... And if we start listening to the Lord, Jesus, what do you want to do? I think what happens is that we tune in to hear the Lord's will on things. It's not just money, but other things. Too often we give to get something back. The New Testament heart, Christopher gives because he's already given us everything. I know that there are a lot of people afraid of saying, okay, God, here's all the money. What do you want me to do with it? God's going to let you keep most of it. He knows what you need to live. But he wants to teach you to be generous toward him. And when God sees a generous man or woman, believe me, God is extra generous. Again, that can't be our motive for doing it. That's just the fruit of it. That's just the benefit of it. And if we understand that, Christopher, 
then we will become generous people. Let me make give one example, and then I'll go on to the next question. Here at our church, uh, we do everything for free. Um, crazy thing, and nobody else that I know does it, but uh, we don't ask for money. We don't pass an offering plate. We have offering boxes in the back and in the foyer. And, um, you know, like everybody nowadays, we make it available to people to give online. And believe me, we need the money. This isn't giant faith. This isn't anything other than us being obedient to Jesus. This is his church. He's asked us to do that. And in the process, we support a free school. We support a free family practice doctor's office. Uh, We support a a house for women. We support all the ministry that gets done. We support uh, the cost of putting this radio program and our other radio programs on the air. More ministry goes out of this place than you can imagine without ever letting our needs be known or ever asking for any money. The reason is because people's hearts have been touched by the Word of God and they have become very generous. I've been told by a pastor friend of mine, if I would start taking an offering, that our offerings would go up 40%. I pray to God that's not the case here. I pray to God. Now, does that mean nobody should let their needs be known? Nobody should pass an offering plate? That's not what I'm saying at all. That's what God has told us to do. But one thing I can say with confidence that any pastor or group of church leaders, depending on the governance of the church, who isn't every day saying, Jesus, this is your church. The money we got is all yours. What do you want us to do with it? If that pastor or those church leaders aren't taking risks, then they don't understand the goodness of God. I had somebody ask me once, Christopher, so what's your church budget and how much of it goes to this or how much of it goes to that? And we just laughed at him because our church budget is, well, we don't know. I have no idea what we're going to get next Sunday. I know what we got yesterday. I don't know what we're going to get next Sunday, so how can I decide what to do? I can simply say, God, you know, and then listen to his direction. And while it may seem risky, I personally believe it's the only way that the church should function. So, Christopher, I hope that makes sense to you. Here is a question from Carlos. He says, Pastor Ron, can you explain Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2? Does that mean God doesn't speak to us through prophets any longer? Uh, yes, Carlos, it does. Now, uh, let me make a, a, an exception here. Um, the, the prophets that speak to us are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul, and, and James, and, and, and the others who, who wrote the New Testament. They're, they're New Testament prophets. Hebrews 1, verse 1 says, In the past, that's important, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, now the last days begin with Jesus' ascension, not his resurrection, but Jesus' ascension into heaven. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. So, Carlos, what this means is that Jesus Christ is God's final word to the world. That's why there's no new revelation. That's why we don't have to have prophets running around saying, Thus saith the Lord, and shame on those people that call themselves prophets and do that. Jesus is the Father's final word. The literal Greek, when it says he spoke to us by his son, the literal Greek is in son. And there could be a period there because it's like it's as though God the Father has nothing else to say to us. Jesus was the final word, the exclamation point. And all we need is what he said. Now, we know that he told his disciples, who would be apostles, I have much more to say to you now, more than you can bear, but when he comes, the Spirit, he will lead you into all truth. Well, it's the Spirit of God working through the men chosen by God who wrote the word so Jesus is God's final word but Jesus is revealed to us in the word of God in the Bible, the scriptures that were preserved for us so we don't need anybody to tell us thus saith the Lord we don't need somebody declaring that they speak for God when God has already spoken 
So that's exactly what it means. Everything that we need to know is contained in the Bible that this program is all about. Everything that we need to know. We preach the Word. The Spirit of God works through the preaching of the Word. As you read the Word, Hebrews chapter 4 says it's living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It cuts between spirit and flesh. So all we need to know what we need for life, for doctrine, for correction, even for rebuke, according to the Apostle Paul, is the Bible and nothing but the Bible. We're not saved by the Bible, but we're saved by the Jesus revealed to us in the Bible. From the Gospel of Matthew through the book of Revelation, Jesus is revealed to us prior to Jesus' incarnation. Jesus was revealed in the Old Testament where saints who didn't see him had to understand by faith. So, Carlos, I hope that helps because that's exactly what it means. It's just Jesus, and you find out who he is in the Word of God. Well, we have 30 minutes left on this Monday edition of the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the program 340-9585 the phones have been quiet i would love to have your calls here is a good question from peter he said what is the biggest difference in the church now as opposed to the early church of Acts. Um, Peter, the, the difference is a complete shift in focus and emphasis. In the early church of Acts, uh, we need only to start in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, and then watch what that church produced. The church in Acts existed for one thing and one thing only, and that's to worship God. They wanted to get to know him better. They wanted to learn. Uh, imagine thousands and thousands of people are getting saved. Uh, they're, they're being cut off, many of them, because the early church was entirely Jewish. They're being cut off from uh, worship in the synagogue. They, they, they were cut from their families. They couldn't participate culturally or economically because so much of the early church, uh, the Jewish um, 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 tradition centered on the the temple the the outer courts and so, so they were they were on their own these were men and women who were suddenly on an island all by themselves and the only thing that kept them going was that there were thousands of others on that same island they had no idea what to do and yet still they worshiped god in the process of worshiping god the spirit was poured out uh, the apostles' doctrine was declared to them, and they clung to it. They were devoted to it, the NIV says. And they learned who he really was. They learned that he was sufficient uh, in, in all of their circumstances, good or bad. Um, God showed off for them over and over and over in terms of demonstrating power. And it was all because they went to church to find out who God was and worship him. Today, we think worship is singing a few songs. The church now exists for man instead of existing for God as the first century church did. You know what we do in the church culture? And this is all church marketing. And marketing can ruin everything that God wants to do. We figure out what people want and we give it to them. Instead of focusing on what God wants, and giving it to him. God wants a purified church. God wants a holy church. God wants a committed and submitted church. That's what we need to give to him. And instead, we're more interested in church shopping to see if a church meets our needs. Church is no longer about us. It's uh, or about God, rather. Church is about us 
And that's the demise of the church. You know, when I first got called to, to be a pastor, Peter, um, not knowing what a pastor did, you know, I knew I was called, and then I started really studying my Bible. And I sort of decided, and I was naive as a brand-new believer, but um, I, I remember very boldly telling the Lord, okay, Lord, if I'm going to be a pastor, I want to be the pastor of the church committed and submitted to you. And he sort of chuckled at me, and he knew my heart was right. But he sort of chuckled at me, and he said, if I find that church, Ron, I'll change the world with it. Well, he found that church in Acts chapter 2. I personally think he's still looking for it. I'd sure like to be, in whatever time I have left, I'd sure like to be the pastor that gives him that church. That's the biggest difference. Our church is now about us. It's not about God. Let's go to the phones, Converse, and talk with Phyllis on line one. Phyllis, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Well, hello, Pastor Ron. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you well, Phyllis. How are you? I'm good. How are you and Paula? We're doing really well. Thank you. Oh, good. I um, hadn't called in a while. I had been uh, tied up with school and work. But um, I had a couple of questions. Actually, um, in studying the book of John, it just um, I came across across um, uh, when he chose the disciples when he first chose Peter uh, mm-hmm. and Andrew, and then he uh, looked like further down he he chose uh, James and John. What what my question was, what really made me start thinking would make a group of men just give up their career, their families, and all to follow Jesus. So. Um, I just wanted to ask you, was there some type of contact with Christ before he chose the disciples? Um, <laughs> and my next question um, is pretty much more like a, I guess, well, I guess it is a question, because I was listening on the radio to a pastor, and he was pretty much saying that um, more in, got more into politics than the teaching itself was. And my question for that is, is uh, do God really want pastors to have that platform to talk about politics? Or should he just strictly teach on the Bible just like you? And I really mm-hmm. appreciate your teaching. And I'm going to hang up the phone and listen to your comment there. Thank you so much. Thank you, Phyllis. Thank you very, very much. The first question she asked, I'll get to in a moment, is one of the most important questions that any of us can ask. And by the way, as we read through the scriptures, we ought to be asking those kinds of questions. So well done, Phyllis. Um, to, to the issue of politics, I can answer this very quickly. We who are pastors have one job and one job only, and that is to declare Jesus. Not to get on a hobby horse, not to support a political party or candidate, but to teach the Word of God. And it's easy to have a big church, Phyllis. If I wanted to have a huge church, I could do it. All I have to do is start preaching Republican politics, uh, get involved in controversial subjects in the world. I'd have a lot of people angry, um, which which isn't a problem. Um, the Word of God offends. Uh, the problem would be that I wouldn't be feeding God's people. I wouldn't be preparing them to live in this world. So no, no, a thousand times no. Um, to, to take precious pulpit time, we have a whole lot of people that come to church, take time out of their busy schedules. Uh, my job is to give them Jesus, not to give them politics. So it's very, very important. Uh, the other question is is really an important. What would make these men just leave everything to follow Jesus? Well, this coming Sunday, Phyllis, I'm actually going to be toward the end of uh, Luke chapter 5, and Jesus is going to do that very thing for Matthew, the tax collector, Levi, the, the writer of the gospel. Jesus is just going to say two words, follow me, and he's going to leave a very lucrative business one that made him evil rich is to leave it all behind and follow Jesus. So what happened? Why would he do that? Well, the same thing happened with Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Now, before 
the call of Peter and James and John into service for the Lord. They were followers, disciples. The word disciple simply means student. Um, prior to Jesus coming on scene, James and John, and we have some evidence Andrew is also a part of that, they were followers of John the Baptist, students of John the Baptist. But now, over a period of time, in the Gospel of John, we have a lot of things that happen in that about a year period of time. The other Gospel writers leave most of that first year out. But what would happen was they would follow Jesus around, they would listen to him, they were certainly intrigued and captivated by him, but they hadn't yet made the decision to follow him, leaving everything behind. Luke chapter 5 begins with that call going out to Peter. Come now, I'll make you fishers of men, he said. Well, that was Peter's call. Peter already knew Jesus and already been influenced by his teaching, but now this was the work of the Holy Spirit to draw him to a deeper relationship. Well, the same thing was true with James and John and Andrew. The same thing will be true in our study this coming Sunday. Uh, with Matthew uh, or Levi, the tax collector. Matthew would have heard Jesus preach over and over. Why would he have heard him? It's simple because Matthew needed the best location. He knew that wherever wherever Jesus was, there were lots and lots of people. What better place could he set up his tax collecting booth? And he would have heard Jesus preaching At first, it would have been irritating to him, but he would have thought, well, this is where the people are. But the power of the Word of God would, even from a little bit of a distance, profoundly impact Matthew's heart. And at just the right time, Jesus walked up to him, almost as if to say, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, take some liberties with the text, almost as if to say, you've been listening, I know you've been listening. Now let's put your money where your mouth is. Follow me. And we know that Matthew did it. So that's why they left everything to follow Jesus. But Phyllis, it's not just Matthew or or Peter, James, John, or Andrew. Every single one of us should leave everything to follow Jesus. Now he's not going to ask us to leave our families, most of us. Some people have to make that choice. He's not going to ask us to leave lucrative businesses, most of us, but some are going to have to make that choice. Could Jesus ever ask us anything where we could understand that he's asking us too much? I think the answer we all know is no. We owe him everything, thus we should give him everything. Phyllis, great questions. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585, Renee wants to know, in light of 1 Peter 3, Is it okay for women to wear modest jewelry? Renee, of course it is. Anybody who says, and I know this is poorly taught in a lot of places, but anybody who says that passage of Scripture prohibits women wearing jewelry or makeup, they don't understand the passage at all. All he's saying is that, relatively speaking, now remember the context is is emulating Sarah, the woman of God. Our beauty, he says, should not come from outward adornment, such as the wearing of fine jewel jewelry or other have expanded that to mean makeup or anything else, but from the inner beauty, a quiet spirit, a woman who really knows and loves God. That's where our real beauty comes from. So this is not an either or thing. This is a how do you make yourself beautiful? By knowing Jesus, by loving God. Now, that doesn't preclude or prohibit us putting on makeup or wearing some jewelry. So, Renee, of course you can wear modest jewelry. If you want to, you can wear a bunch of jewelry. Just check your heart and make sure. The same thing is true with makeup and, and other things. You're free in Christ. You're not bound and if you love Jesus, you are absolutely beautiful. So, Renee, that's what Peter is telling us, not to avoid those kind of things. And 
again, it breaks my heart when we have so much legalism. I've actually had women come crying to me after I've taught these passages because they were raised in churches where they were taught that to wear jewelry or to wear makeup or to cut your hair was a sin. And boy, those Bible teachers, uh, false teachers, have a lot to answer for. Let's go to San Antonio now and talk with Michelle on line one. Michelle, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Hi, uh, Pastor. I just had a comment um, for your earlier caller that called and asked about the political question. And and um, I, I disagree in that I think a lot of the reasons we're in the political climate, the climate we're in with so many different issues is because pastors are not talking about things that um, may be considered political, and I guess they are. And I'd also like to say that, you know, Jesus, when he walked, you know, the earth, he talked about a lot of issues that weren't popular with people, and they may have been considered political. But I think, in my in my opinion, and I think that pastors do need to talk. I, I understand the number one thing is to preach the Word of God and to uh, teach that. But so many times I've walked into different churches and I walk out very disappointed, very empty, um, because they're not there. You know, for example, Christmas. They're talking about singing Christmas carols and for the kids, and I get it, but not one altar call, not one. You know, and they're. And those are major times when people do attend church that n- normally wouldn't go. So I, I know I'm, 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 I'm on a tangent, but I think it's important, <laughs> and that's my opinion, that the people, the pastors do need to, I think a lot of times, I think they fail, have failed, and, and we're having so much, so much angst in our, in our, in the climate right now with people, you know, uncomfortable. Pastors not talking about things that do need to be spoken of. Um, that are clearly written in the Word of God. So um, I'll, I'll hang up and let you comment. But thank you so much. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for re- for disagreeing so respectfully. And I only partially disagree with you. So so let me explain myself. Um, you cannot find one place in Scripture where Jesus spoke about a political issue. Jesus spoke to Jews. He used the law because Jews were under the law. Jesus pointed them to their need for him. He came not to judge the world, but that through him the world would be saved. He told us how to live in light of the kingdom, the coming kingdom of God, the kingdom that was announced um, with boldness with his arrival. Um, But he left the political issues completely alone. The same thing is true with the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, and others, the the writers of our Bible. Um, They told us to submit to the authority of the the people uh, who were in authority, those who governed over us, and to live quiet, peaceful lives, lives that would enable us to declare the glory of God. So um, for me, for example, to get up and preach on abortion, Um, I would be preaching uh, first primarily to the choir in a Christian church. But what I wouldn't be doing is providing people the spiritual, the doctrinal foundation to help them stand against the flow of evil in this world. Now, uh, I've spoken a lot against abortion. I do that in the context of teaching the Bible verse by verse. I also agree with you that that if, in fact, uh, pastors would teach through the Bible, um, they could cover everything. We talk very plainly about sexual immorality, whether it's heterosexual immorality or homosexual immorality. We talk about marriage because when we're teaching through the Bible, you can't help but to talk about marriage. But by teaching the Bible instead of preaching against some present evil in our day, We're equipping the Christians who are hearing the word being taught by the power of God's spirit working through his word. We're equipping them to stand firm in a world that's going to oppose them and attack them. You see, it's the Bible that prepares us to take a stand. It's a Bible that gives us a sense of morality. If a pastor gets up and talks about gay marriage or if a pastor gets up and talks about abortion, um, all he's doing is he's carnival barking and he's talking to people that agree with him. 
It is the word that equips us. The word that equips us to take a stand for what is right and against what is wrong in this world. Politics has no place and preaching topics has no place. We preach Jesus. He is the power of God to transform. We need to understand that. Let me also say, Michelle, you hit on one of my pet projects, my things that drives me crazy. You will never, ever come to a church service here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio on Easter or Christmas where people don't get saved because they're invited to be saved. We teach the Bible on Christmas and Easter. We do it teaching the story. It's a story everybody knows and everybody's heard. But when you teach it verse by verse, the power of God is there to convict. The power of God is there to draw. And, and to, to, to do that without giving people the opportunity to come to know Jesus would be, in my view, a sin against God. He's made it clear, Michelle, uh, in my ministry, that every time there is an audience in front of me, they are to get an opportunity, an invitation to come to know Jesus Christ. And if I'm preaching, back to the original subject, if I'm preaching on abortion, if I'm preaching against gay marriage, how can they know the one that I'm going to invite them to come to? I can promise every pastor slash preacher who might possibly be hearing this radio program. I invite you by teaching the scriptures and focusing on that. You'll have plenty of opportunities to address the evil in this world. Why? Because that's what the Holy Spirit does, writing his word. But to, to have even for a moment the thought that I'm going to take valuable pulpit time to preach politics is not only presumptuous, but it makes me faithless. So, Michelle, thank you very, very much, and I love your passion for wanting people to come to Christ. Um, maybe next Christmas or next Easter, you can bring your unsaved friends to our services. I promise you they're going to give the opportunity to get saved and know why they need to in the process. Thanks a lot. Let's go to George calling from San Antonio. George, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Oh, hello there, Pastor Ron. Good to talk to you. Um, Hi, George. Good to hear from you. I had a question. Yeah, there's a well, there's one of the basic uh, statements in the Bible about talks about being a living sacrifice, and uh, I think I had this in the correct focus. To me, that I suppose means just giving up those things that that God doesn't like or doesn't honor. Um, just I guess just living your life toward Him. Um, I think about the rich young ruler. It's um, you know not not trying to be funny here, but he he was almost asked to be a living sacrifice on steroids. There, I mean, he just really wanted. He was really asked to give up a lot. But does it all just basically tie in as the same thing? Does it giving up your way and going God's way? Is it that simple? Yeah, it's that simple. But the point Paul was making in Romans twelve. George is is much more involved than than just that uh, a living sacrifice. You know, Jesus who died for us, who gave everything for us, could never ask too much from us. And Paul is playing off the picture of a Jewish sacrifice. You know, when when uh, an animal, a burnt offering, it was to be consumed completely on the altar, uh, and the idea it's completely gone, completely burned up. Um, but 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 that's a dead sacrifice. He's saying to you, Christian, offer your bodies to Jesus to live for him. And that's what it really means. When we're offering our bodies to the Lord, we're saying, uh, I'm, I'm not my own. I was bought with a price. You're the one in charge. You're the one in control. And when we, we understand that, then he doesn't ask us to die for him. He asks us instead to live for him on that basis. And when we do that, we're going to be lived, living, uh, driven by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to have a desire to please God rather than be be dragged away by the things that don't please God, what we're going to do is we're going to conclude very simply that Jesus, my whole life is for you. That's why 
Jesus in his ministry said, and I mentioned this verse earlier in the program, he said, if you find your life, you're going to lose it. Now, his audience were people that had goals and career dreams and ambitions, many of them religious leaders. And Jesus said, no, if you find your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose it for me, that's when you'll find it. And what happens, George, is we find that the sacrifices that we make when we offer our bodies to Jesus Christ turn out not to be sacrifices at all. Let me explain this um, um, a little bit. We're coming to the end of the program. We have Saturday morning prayer here um, every Saturday at 9.30. Uh, Paul and I are here. If we're in town, we're always here. And uh, one of the, the men was praying uh, this Saturday. He said, Lord, um, we've denied our flesh or we've, we've given up our time to come and be here and pray with you. Um, and I know what he meant, and he meant, he meant well. Um, we, we, we denied our flesh and we're here to pray for you. Um, but, but by coming to pray, what we find is that we're indulging our flesh. We're indulging it. We're indulging the life. We're, we're finding the, 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 the greater part, as Jesus spoke about Mary of Bethany. We come to sit at the feet of the Lord, and there's nothing in this world that we could have done that maybe our flesh would have preferred we do. There's nothing that we could have done that would have turned out to be anywhere near as exciting or as fulfilling. So that's what it means to be a living sacrifice. It's to get up every day and say, Jesus, what about me and what about today? And when we do that, believe me, that's when we find that abundant life that Jesus promised. George, great observation. Thank you for the call. Well, time's gone tonight. Ladies, Sweet Summer Devotion, Phyllis MacArthur at 7 o'clock. We'd love to have you come. You've been listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525.